I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Paul Grogan is one of the nation's great civic innovators. From his early service as aide to two Boston mayors to the creation of the nation's first national intermediary for community development, to the founding of CEOs for Cities, then to Harvard, and now as president and CEO of the Boston Foundation, Paul has had a 360 view of what makes cities tick. It's been a tour de force of civic service, which is why Paul always has important new insights to share on cities. Paul, you've been in the city building business for many years, first inside Boston City Hall and later as president of the local initiative support corporation, better known as LISC, author of Comeback Cities, now as president of the Boston Foundation. What matters today to the success of cities that mattered when you started and what has changed? Well, when I got started in this work, of course, uh, there was great pessimism about the future of the American city. Boston and the other great cities, uh, certainly in the Northeast and Midwest, were in steep decline, losing population and jobs. Uh, And that led to a lot of very real uh, problems, but it also led to, I think, a tremendous pessimism about the future of the city. All the action, all the investment was in the suburbs. It seemed to be the way people wanted to uh, live if they if they possibly could. And uh, I'm just happy that I've (laughs) lived long enough to see just an enormous uh, turnaround uh, from those days where now significant segments of um, the population clearly prefer urban living, including a a lot of the most desired uh, young people, the most skilled young people coming out of our uh, colleges and universities. But cities are also popular with uh, my generation of uh, baby boomers who largely raised their families in the suburbs but now don't need the big house and are really attracted to the new vitality that Boston and many other cities are are displaying with uh, the, the, the dining out scene, the, the arts and culture and theater scene. Uh, so there's really been, I think, uh, uh, just a tremendous turnaround, but also more fundamentally in terms of the economy. You know, uh, uh, Ed Glazer, uh, the uh, urban economist from Harvard, says, you know, cities are all about necessary proximity. And for a while there was a view that uh, you didn't need to be close to one another because you have the uh, Internet or other other means of communicating. But it turns out that that misses the the continued value of human interaction. And so you see cities that, like Boston, that, that have these superb clusters of, um, of activity in healthcare and uh, technology and finance, they really feed off of each other and are, are just a, a, a very different phenomenon than we were looking at uh, a generation ago. Boston has had an interesting economic trajectory. I remember when it lost fidelity and you know that was a that was a big disappointment. Its innovation climate was unfavorably compared to that of Silicon Valley and yet Boston has had an amazing resurgence. What was the strategy that led to the comeback? Well, I'm not sure there there was a strategy uh for a comeback except uh really to uh promote the city. Uh, to make it safe, I think I think one of the things that Boston has offered is is relatively corruption-free government for about a half a century now, and uh, it's a strong mayor form of government, and that uh, that has worked very well. We've had good mayors; they've been very different, but uh, each made a contribution. Um, but I think you know one of the things you have to realize in terms of what's working for the city now 
is that, you know, political leadership had, had relatively little to do with it. Um, and I think of two major uh, phenomena that, that lifted the city. I mean, one is the way the world economy has revalued, in a way, Boston's distinctive higher education assets. Uh, there's nothing like Boston anywhere in the world. We have eight research universities in the metropolitan area, another 70 or so uh, colleges, hundreds of thousands of students from across the country and around the world flood into the city every fall to attend those institutions. The research that is being done at these universities, Boston, uh, with the exception of California, captures more federal research dollars than, than any other place. And yet we've always had these universities, even when Boston was in the economic doldrums, which is what it was in for most of the 20th century. So the universities were always here, but what happened is the world came around to them. And now a modern research university is probably one of the most important economic assets a city a city can have. And then a second uh, thing that may be equally significant was really a result of an environmental initiative, and that was the cleanup of the Boston Harbor, once one of the dirtiest harbors uh, in, in the world. We, some of us remember the presidential campaign between Mike Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts, and George Bush, and, and Bush actually came to Boston uh, to embarrass Mike Dukakis with the uh, condition of the uh, Boston's harbor. Well, uh, thanks to some environmental activists, extraordinary environmental activists who worked on this for many years, and we're very proud that the Boston Foundation supported these efforts, uh, really pushed, prodded, advocated, and ultimately litigated uh, to get the harbor uh, cleaned up to uh, force the federal and state governments to uh, to do what they were supposed to do to meet uh, environmental standards. And the result was a $4.4 billion cleanup of the harbor and uh, it's just stunning uh, how that has affected the city. The city, in a, in a very real way, is moving to the waterfront. The, both the population growth and the growth of jobs are higher there than anywhere else uh, in the city. And, of course, a lot of cities are around the country are recycling once industrial waterfronts, uh, whether on major rivers, lakes, or uh, or, or the ocean, as, as we are. So water has become, I call it the third version of, of water power, you know, the, that has lifted Boston. Of course, we started as a as a community very oriented to the sea and shipping and uh, the maritime, glorious maritime uh, period of Boston. That was number one. Number two was the, the rushing rivers and streams of New England, of course, powered the first phase of the Industrial Revolution uh, in North America as it came over from from Great Britain, and this is the third version of water power, which is uh, uh, the attraction of uh, of water, people's desire to be around water, to recreate, to live, um, and uh, and to uh, locate their businesses. And uh, so it's it's kind of sobering in a way, if I'm right, that those those two things are. Two of the biggest things that happened, the revaluation of our of our research universities and, and colleges and the cleanup of the Boston Harbor, uh, you know, what what is there left for, for political or city leadership to do? And I, I actually think there's a great deal for them to do. They they have to first of all take the best advantage uh, that they can of these positive changes that they did not uh bring about. Uh it's possible to screw them up. And they have to perform uh, the core functions of a city very, very well. I mentioned Boston's relatively corruption-free 50 years, uh, but basic services, uh, 
although people are questioning it, I will tell you with the snow, all the snow that's fallen in the last few days, basic services have been very, very good. So the city has an important role to play, but it's interesting that these major developments just are sort of things that happened uh, rather than were, were engineered. You know, the other thing that's so interesting about the, the two examples you cite, they probably would never have appeared in anyone's economic development plan. What can you think of other equivalents that that cities might have, other cities, cities other than Boston might have, that would have the same sort of economic development effect? You know, the, the, we're still a society that where commodities can matter enormously, and if you if you happen to be uh, in an energy-rich uh, environment, I mean, you know, uh, Tulsa, I think Tulsa has one of the biggest community foundations in the country right now, and it's a very direct result of uh, the oil business. And uh, we we don't have those natural uh, resources in uh, in this part of the country. So, uh, you know, one theory is that it's uh, caused us to be a little bit more creative, perhaps, and attract innovative people uh, through the universities. But other than that, I don't know. I, I think many, many cities are focused rightly on trying to keep young talent uh, in the city and recognizing the the the, the new uh, the resurgence of urban values and urban styles, and are uh, trying to remake themselves to be more attractive uh, to those uh, young people that prefer urban living. I think I think it's probably too early to tell you know how much impact those things are having. But uh, another great thing about Boston is that uh, ever since I think Faneuil Hall Marketplace was redeveloped in the White administration in the late. 70s. That may, that was sort of almost a defiant reassertion of urban values. Now we're going to have a gathering place. We're going to have life on the street. We're going to have, you know, a 24-hour place here in the oldest part of the city. And uh, that was very hard to do, hard to get financing for. In fact, I remember that Kevin White, the mayor at the time, and Jim Rouse, the legendary developer and later the founder of the Enterprise Foundation, were running around to all of our financial institutions. And we had a lot more uh, headquarters companies in those days than we do now before the great consolidation that's occurred. And they were turned down everywhere they went. And this wasn't a project in Roxbury or a low-income neighborhood, but in the historic heart of the city. But that shows you the depth of the, just the disbelief that cities could come back uh, uh, at that point. But ever since then, I think, you know, there have been some, some mistakes, but the city's redevelopment authority has been alive to urban values and has understood that that's really what's in ascendance again and and we really have to safeguard those things as uh, as the city develops further if the best economic development strategies for boston were never labeled as economic development strategies as you point out where will economic development policy and strategy come from it's a, it's really a statement that you need you need to involve a, a, a lot of people. Cities have got to be willing to have the big conversations and invite and invite people in, because you you recognize that opportunity can come from unlikely places or developments. And you know it's very difficult sometimes for some politicians to uh, to really do that. Um, you know, our uh, may he rest in peace, our departed mayor, uh, Tom Menino, was just a terrific mayor in so many ways, but he he really was not comfortable 
with the big conversations, the big inclusive conversations about the shape of the city and the future of the city. And so while the city made tremendous progress under his leadership in terms of sort of the character of the development process and the ideas, they were were quite limited um, because the invitation wasn't there. Uh, Well, now it is. Mayor Walsh is very, very different and signaled very strongly that he wants to be challenged, that he wants ideas from wherever they come. So they're in a whole series of ways, and we'll be involved in in parts of this at the foundation. uh, So all the doors and windows are being opened up uh, once again. And I think if we can all be attuned to this history and remember some of our biggest assets uh, were in some ways not seen or or were unbidden, that 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 will help people think more broadly and be more creative and searching and curious about about what can uh, power this city going forward. You probably know more about urban leadership than anyone working in the field today. Is it time for an overhaul of leadership groups in U.S. cities? Oh, I, I, I definitely uh, think so. You know, all the mayors uh, belong to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Um, I'm sure they do some useful things, but it's a uh, it's an organization I think for a long time has been oriented to the to the past, to the battles of the past, to the you know the crisis of the cities, and so you know there have been such momentous changes in cities, and there there are such possibilities, including just that we're being driven also by global trends of urbanization. That it just stands to reason that new organizations, new forms of cooperation are uh, are really going to be necessary. And uh, one of the things that's happening here, it appears to be happening, it's, it's early, is, uh, and, and again, the new mayor striking a very different note, is uh, an embrace of regionalism and a recognition that political boundaries, they're important, but they don't describe the economic or, or social reality of, of cities. And there just has to be a, a, ver- a much higher level of uh, cooperation, consultation, and I've heard, uh, you know, a number of mayors saying we've got to celebrate, you know, the other guys' wins. You know, the mayor of Somerville saying, you know, if if Boston has a big win in terms of attracting business, we ought to be applauding that. Uh, and uh, we uh, we and the other corollary is we should not be uh, trying to get businesses to move within metropolitan areas. That that's not a net gain uh, for anybody, and that the the emphasis should be on working together to uh, make the whole region attractive to the uh, prospective you know business leader or investor. So I, I think that's very healthy, and uh, and it's belated, but a belated recognition of uh, of the reality, and and you know certainly remembering the political boundaries, but not being completely captive uh, of them. Paul, you've done a lot of work with hospitals and universities, so-called anchor institutions, to get them to contribute more to their immediate neighborhoods in terms of purchasing and hiring and improving the neighborhood generally. With the financial squeeze on health care and public higher education, do you expect them to turn inward again? Well, I certainly, I certainly hope not. Um, one of the things that I think the uh, leaders of the major healthcare and educational institutions really embrace is the the mutual interest of the uh, uh, of the city and the region and and their particular institutions. I really think we've gotten past, or largely have gotten past, the adversarial. Uh, stances of the previous era. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, the 
colleges and universities of Boston have seen what it means to their applicant pool to be in such a vital city. It's had a tremendously positive impact. So I don't expect them to retreat, but I, I do think that this is certainly one of the major challenges that Boston has. Uh, we've, you know, relied so heavily on the so-called uh, eds and meds, and, and, you know, they're huge businesses them in and of themselves, but they underlie a great many other businesses. You know, healthcare leaders here have warned that they, it's going to be very difficult for them to be the job jobs engine that they have been at other times. And then, you know, many, even though I don't think there's a clear picture of what's going to happen, many people have the view that, of course, the bricks and mortar, these tremendously expensive bricks and mortar colleges and universities, the Internet's going to do the same thing to them that it's done to everything else, which is, you know, reshape it in ways that people could hardly uh, have imagined. You know, this is another cycle of uh, potential weakening or restructuring of of core industries that is uh, something that we're going to have to keep our eye on and, again, bring bring that innovation mentality uh, to the future. For instance, there, there are a tremendous number of, they're kind of below the radar screen, but there are a tremendous number of exciting experiments going on in Boston around, you know, payment for, for medical care, which is, you know, I think there's widespread recognition that the fee-for-service model that we operate on has driven costs up and, and called for lots more procedures that are often necessary, and, and instead we ought to be paying for health outcomes. And uh, so hopefully Boston will be a leader in fashioning a, a new health paradigm that will moderate health care costs and also create healthier populations. But it's exciting to be in a place that's wrestling with that, but it, of course it, it's a tall order. The other thing Boston has going for it in this arena, I think, is just the, the strength that's emerged in life sciences, where we have no peer. We're clearly uh, second rate compared to Silicon Valley in, in technology generally, but in life sciences, there's there's no place like this. I mean, you can really make the argument that there's a good chance that a good part of the human future will be invented uh, in Boston. And uh, I think that's a, that's a kind of franchise that is incredibly, incredibly uh, value valuable and will keep the drug companies coming. You ran a big urban financial intermediary list that functions – I guess in some ways as a super community development corporation, a, a CDC for CDCs in some ways, enterprise, living cities, or other national organizations trying to funnel dollars and ideas to cities. Now from your local perspective again, running the Boston Foundation, what do you think is missing at the national level that would propel the success of cities? You know, one of the things that the community development movement was uh, very successful at was the creation of a, of a public policy framework that actually was useful to the grassroots explosion that was occurring. But for you know quite a long time as this movement emerged, you had the federal programs that existed were, were, were not useful at all and it did not recognize this new paradigm of grassroots leadership backed by local coalitions of lenders, foundations, state and local government, uh, uh, et cetera. And, and we were able to get the low-income housing tax credit enacted. Uh, we were able to get this Community Reinvestment Act very considerably revitalized. 
we were successful in getting uh, expectations placed on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, to be responsive. Uh, the home program, uh, and uh, I guess the last one in that string was the new markets tax credit. The amazing thing about that list is that all those things are still in existence, which if you had told me in 1986 when we got the low-income housing tax credit passed that in 2015 it would still be there, I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And I think it has, it says something about the appeal of grassroots revitalization and the, and the recognition that bottoms-up action really matters and that communities that are very, very troubled can be, uh, can be turned around if people have the right equipment. So I think what has to happen, again, is for the urban, you know, progressives and activists to, to really get together and, and talk about what, what are the things that, that really uh, need doing uh, now. And one of the things that I've thought of that national, the national foundations and the federal government ought to be interested in is this intermediary strategy that played out in community development. And I'm obviously hopelessly biased here, having been the CEO of LISC for 13 years. But I just think it's, it's beyond question that the emergence of um, two significant national intermediaries, uh, LISC and Enterprise, that could create a bridge between this largely invisible grassroots movement and centers of power and resources that would otherwise have been completely unavailable to the grassroots movement being as uh, dispersed and, and thinly capitalized uh, as it was. I mean, think about it. You know, we, we were able to get all that public policy enacted by, by in effect, presenting the power and possibility and excitement of grassroots to the to the Congress and to successive administrations. Um, we were able to create channels. Living Cities is a great example of that for, you know, large amounts of capital to flow into communities where it just would have been very difficult for the sources of that capital, the national foundations, to do that themselves with any assurance of, uh, of success. And the intermediaries also played a tremendous role in just lifting the practice of community development in a lot of cities and, and some others, cleaning it up. Uh, community development in some cities was controlled by politicians, uh, not productive, and you know, the, the intermediaries could sort of set the terms and say, we're not going to come to your city, you know, unless we straighten this out. So you think about, that's a long list of positives. Why haven't Hasn't this been tried in some other areas? One thinks of uh, job training, uh, for instance, or energy uh, retrofitting and conservation. I couldn't we imagine national intermediaries, again, feeding, nurturing, supporting a growing web of, of uh, local efforts uh, to take on uh, issues uh, uh, like these. So I think it's really a matter of, of getting people together and talking about what the what the opportunities are now. And, you know, there are a series of ineffectual credits for job creation that exists. Why not, as was done with the low-income housing tax credit, replacing ineffectual tax incentives, dream up something powerful that could really unleash job growth in, uh, in inner cities. So I think, Carol, there are all sorts of possibilities if the connection can be made between what is actually happening and what the possibilities are that people are seeing in their communities 
and a public policy that would further those efforts, but on a, on a basis of of partnership and private participation, which was so appealing uh, a facet of the community development movement. As you consider the future of cities, Paul, what do you see rising in importance? And, and what is diminishing? Well, I think, and Boston went through this, people got very much in the habit of defining their cities by the headquarters companies who happen to be there. And I think Boston just offers a case study of how wrong people were to think that the economy would be seriously damaged if, if we lost headquarters companies. What, what It turned out to be, as we've discussed, far more significant that we held on to the stranded assets of uh, healthcare and, and higher education institutions, and uh, you know it's very hard to even keep track of all the bank uh, mergers and so forth. Um, but it just hasn't had uh, the impact. So, so we're, cities are, are kind of, I think, they're free from that anchor and uh, can really rethink what they want to do. And, and it's all around the issue of, of human capital and raising the education level of the working population and this is another thing that's come into come in for more attention i think rightly that uh, a city's fate is highly dependent on the level of uh, educational attainment of of the population so efforts and there are some going on as you know around the country and 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 local efforts like a, a major one that we have here focused on trying to dramatically improve college completion rates for public school graduates, particularly low-income minority and immigrant students, uh, which nationally are disastrously low. But that that can be done. We believe it it can be done. It's not impossible, but you have to have a strategy uh, and a very sophisticated strategy to uh, to do that. So this focus on talent, raising the educational attainment uh, of the population, holding on to, to those that, that do have those qualifications, you know, I think that that that's far more important than a, any number of things you can think about uh, that, that used to be regarded as uh, whether a city would thrive or not. But I think that should be encouraging to people that that it's wide open. And, and if we focus on talent, the talent will come forward and uh, with the ideas that are necessary. Paul, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being our guest on Night City. My pleasure, Carol. Paul Grogan is president and CEO of the Boston Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.